0: How's everyone doing this morning? Good. Oh, clapping. All right. Good, good, good. And good morning to you watching or listening online. We are so glad that you're joining us here this morning. Well, the Christmas season is over. It's over. Some are cheering, some are clapping. It's over. Now, it's been interesting. I've been, uh, I've been watching this last Christmas season, and I found something interesting. It's been happening, actually, for the last probably five or six years. Less and less Christmas cards are being sent. Wouldn't you agree? used to be a big thing, a huge thing, but now just a few less things. And yet, there seems to be a new resurgence of them in a different way. Families are now going online, getting people to take their photos, or they take their own photos, right? They go to a place called Vistaprint. That's one of the companies. Do you know what I'm talking about? They insert their picture in there. You choose from 1.2 million different varieties of Christmas cards, and then what do you do? Well, you, you get them sent to your house, and you send them home. Well, we decided this year to do this, and so we asked our friend Gary, one of our pastors here, he, uh, he actually does this on the side. We said, come on over to our house. We would love you to take some family photos. So here's the picture that we chose this year to use. Here it is right there. Oh, look. Come on. Yeah. Oh, what a perfect family. Right? There it is, right there. And so this was a pretty good picture and we loved it. Now my favorite one that we didn't use actually is this next one. Here it is right here. Look at this. Isn't that great? Uh, I, think, I think that's a great one. So this is good. Now, all of us who have families, you just have to be a human being to know this. Do you think it always looks like this? No. Uh, do you think it looked like this two seconds before and after these pictures? No, th- these, Now, these were not doctored. I mean, these are real. These aren't photoshopped, but th- there was all sorts of activity before and after. Here's another one we could have chosen by the fireplace. Oh, there it is. There it is. Now, my middle daughter, not so much. Anyway, but there you go. Now, uh, as I was talking to Gary, I said, Gary, listen, I want you just to keep going. I want you to take as many photos in the next 20 minutes as you can. Now, I promise you, this next picture is not faked or set up. Uh, go to the next picture right here. Okay. All right? I just I just want you to know we're just like you. Okay. So, here we go. My one daughter's watching television. My other daughter is done. John Thompson, look. The glasses are down. The finger is out. Noah, get over here. We are going to have a nice Christmas photo. No. And my daughter, you know, see see now look. Why I love you can take that off now. Please. Come on. The reason why I love this is because that actually is the whole truth. See, that's the whole experience. Joanna was preaching to the 905 community a while ago, and she said to the young adult community, be careful that you don't believe the lie of Instagram, because what's taking place is so many of us on Facebook or, or Instagram or, or even in these cards think that the perfect moments are only the real picture. And they're not. You see, we need to send Christmas cards out with both of those pictures. Because that's the truth. That's the whole story. And see, we need the whole story. Because when we have the whole story, we have the whole picture. And we know what we really experience and what's going on. That's why in the book of Ephesians, something's about to change for us. See, just like those two cards where he had the one where everything was good and laughing and the other one where things were falling apart or reality was setting in. Neither of those are false, by the way. Both of those are true, but you need both to counterbalance the other. In the book of Ephesians, the same thing takes place. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul, what he begins to do is he outlines the beautiful picture of what God has already done among us. Paul spends all this time showing us the profound love and grace and power that God has already expressed in and among us. But in chapter 4, 5, and 6, he moves us now to the next picture. Now, by the way, this turn in Ephesians is not for the worse, but it does move us now to act. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where, as a whole church, that phrase on that wall, we're all in this together, is going to be tested See, now here in chapter 4 onward, Paul outlines, he actually shows us what unity looks like for a Christian, what unity really looks like in a Christian family, what unity looks like for a local church, and what unity even looks like between other local churches. So starting today and for the rest of the series, we get to test and see if we're really in this together. We're going to see not just one picture, we're going to see the whole picture and we're really going to see if C4 is a church united. So Paul, as one wrote, basically moves us now in chapter 4 from doctrine to duty, creed to conduct, wealth to walk, exposition to exhortation. He is saying as members of a new humanity found in Jesus Christ, let's see what the word united really looks like. Let's see if all our already given unity plays out, spills out, and touches everything that we are. So if you've got a Bible this morning, turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, because this is how he begins the conversation. Hear the word of God this morning. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul says, look, let me remind you one more time. I'm sitting in jail Because of my work to bring Jews and non-Jews together into a new community through Jesus. My fellow Jews hate it. The Romans are threatened by it. The Greeks think it's crazy and nonsense. But for all of us who have said yes, we know better, right? The peace I have experienced, we together actually have experienced, is worth everything. It's worth my time, worth my money. It's worth my life. It's worth my freedom. Now, is it worth such sacrifice? Why is it worth such sacrifice? Paul says, because my life is a life of worth. My life, Paul says, has real weight. It has substance. It has meaning. It is a purpose-driven life for real. He says, so since I have this life, you all are called, you as the church, we the church are called to lead a life worthy of the calling you've already received. Everyone wants a life that has meaning. Make no mistake about it. Every single person wants purpose. But let's be honest here this morning, brutally honest in this new year. Most of us are going to be forgotten. I feel so unbelievably uncomfortable when people say at funerals or at national remembrances or at war memorials, we will always remember. No, you will not. Most people on earth are forgotten. And those that have note for a period in time, they fade too. Statues that are built to remember great things crumble. Books stop being read. Art is forgotten. Records are broken by the next generation. The last invention is replaced by the next one. The bravery in war or in tragedy fades over time as that event moves farther on. Nothing really lasts. And if you happen to be one of those people... One of the few thousand that are truly remembered throughout all times. When Jesus returns, all that's going to be forgotten too. And yet Paul comes along, he says, I want you to live a life that has weight and worth and purpose and will be remembered. So the question is, if everything fades and yet Paul is saying, do this, what does it look like? Do you want a life of worth? Do you want a life that has real weight? Do you want a life that will be remembered forever beyond status, books, inventions, achievement, actions, or friendships? Then live a life, Paul says, molded by God and molded by his word because of this. Everyone ready? God himself will remember what you did in eternity. And what he remembers lasts. What he remembers never fades, never crumbles. Nothing is ever forgotten by God. And so Paul comes along in Ephesians 4 and says, you listen closely, church, because out of this last half of Ephesians, you will begin to see what a life of worth and weight and substance really is. And if you live this life under God and under his word, it will be a life that ripples into all of eternity. It is worth your time, your money, your life, everything, because it will really last. Now, the whole conversation in chapter 4 of a worthy life starts back with the very first picture, the smiling picture, where we've already been, the motive, uh, the reason, the ability to live such a life of worth that does ripple into eternity is connected, he says here, to our calling. So as we start 2014 again, let me, for the third time in this ministry year, remind us of what Paul has already declared over each one of us and as a community What has already happened to us? What is the one thing that allows us to actually be united? We'll hear it again. For out of these truths, the reason to change, obey, love each other, and stay united together exists. Paul has declared in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 these words. Listen closely. To every Christian sitting in this room, all of you watching online, if you've truly embraced Jesus... He has declared that we together are saints. Right now, before God the Father, we are perfect because of Jesus. We together have grace. We together have peace. We together have been included in Christ. We together are blessed in the heavenly realms in Jesus, which means Satan is underneath our feet because he's underneath Jesus' feet. We're blessed in the heavenly realms with Christ. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We together are chosen. For no one elected and called. We together have been adopted as children. Each one of us are sons and daughters of God. We together have redemption... We together have forgiveness. We together have been sealed, branded, and tattooed by the Spirit of God in our souls. And because of that, we together have eternal security. You never need to keep running back to God to make sure you are in. When God the Father calls you, when God the Son says you are my son or daughter, and when God the Holy Spirit fills you, you are His forever. We are God's possession. We are no longer spiritually dead, he says. We're no longer marked by trespass or sin. We no longer have to participate in the world's way of thinking or living. We are no longer owned by the devil. We've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. We are no longer under the burden or lie that we get to know God by how good we are. We together get to reject the idea that God will love some of us more than others because of what we do. And yet we together get to embrace the idea that we love God through what we do because he loved us first. God has declared over us that we are his poem, that we together, Jews and non-Jews, have been brought into a new family. Jesus has given us peace with the Father and given us peace with each other. We have equal access to God through Jesus. We get to approach God no matter on our best or worst day with confidence and freedom because of Jesus' work. We together are citizens of a new city. We're members of a new family. We together are the building blocks of a new temple. We together are the church. See, that is the calling that Paul is talking about. He says, that is the calling you have received. So now as I get into talking about what unity looks like, don't you dare forget any of that. Since this has been done over us and in us and among us, since now you have real unity, real unity between you and God and other people who follow Jesus, now let me demonstrate, crystallize, paint the painting for you of what a life of worth and unity looks like. And he says, let me start in one of the hardest places. Let me start in one of the hardest places. Let me start with your motives. Let's start with our attitudes. Let's start with our relationships. Verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in what? What? Love. Be completely. Do you see any way out of that verse? Be completely, totally, wholly, entirely, fully, finally, utterly, absolutely humble. Should I stop preaching now? (laughs) Completely humble. There's no room in the Christian life for self-sufficiency. Humility is the proper estimation of oneself. One wrote, knowing our true condition before God and asking him to remove all false self-deception is true humility. But There's even more to this. Radical service, that song, they will know we are Christians by our love. Our love, quotient, is directly connected to our level of of humility. See, this verse is ground zero. Ephesians 4.2, after this verse, everything else he says is connected to this. For the next three chapters, it's an outworking of this. This is ground zero for church unity. This is ground zero for we're all in this together. This is ground zero for the idea of a church united. Now, as I preached in the last series, we missed the power of the word humility because of where we live in 2014. Let me read to you what one scholar wrote. See, humility, he writes, would have been a startling word in the ears of the original audience. Because 2,000 years ago, humility was only used for slaves. It was a slave virtue. It was not a quality touted for proud citizens of a Roman city like Ephesus. Greek ethicists, or moralists of their day, viewed humility as a subservient attitude of a lower class person. In other words, those people have to do that. But not me. It involved distasteful self-abasement. The root word literally for humility, you can write this down, means to level a mountain. That gives you important insight into what this is being, what the call is. See, a mountain chooses to be made low, and the mighty gives up their throne. Now, this choice is not enforced. It is not declared that you must, it is chosen. See, humility becomes the virtue describing lowly service, chosen and executed by a noble person. As one person wrote, a tall one levels him or herself. Paul comes along and he says, I want the church to be filled with people who are mountains, who choose to level themselves for others. And I want you to do this completely. He says, I want a church to be filled with humility. How could you not be involved in humility in our movement when Jesus is our example? He says, gentleness too. The word gentle is meekness. When we think about gentle in our culture, we view it as weak. But that's terribly wrong. See, gentleness from a Christian worldview, from the scriptures, means sheer power under control. The most powerful example of meekness, of course, is Jesus. He is fully God, and yet he chose not to use power even though he had it. Can you imagine slapping Jesus in the face as he's being tortured, and he is God, he could remove you from eternity with a blink, spitting in his face, mocking him, save yourself if you're the son of God. He chose not to respond. See, hear this this morning, church, meekness and gentleness is where real power is, not violence or control. The real power in this world is not from politics, and it's not from the devil, and it's not from domination. It is found in meekness. Jesus chose to forgive power. Jesus chose never to get involved in petty revenge. No bitterness, no pride, no gossip, no slander. When he was accused, what did he do? He said nothing. Be utterly humble and gentle. And then Paul says, and also be wholly patient. I fall down on this one all the time, as you saw in the picture. There's my public confession. One of the best definitions of patience I ever read was this. Don't be short-tempered, be long-tempered. Paul says, I want mountains to level themselves. I want people with great power not to use it inappropriately. I want people who are short-tempered to become long-tempered. And then he says, I want you to bear with one another. Now, don't misread that. Because you can mistranslate that. Oh, I'm going to bear with you. Seat 25, yeah, I'm bearing with you. No, 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 no. Bearing is the word forbearance. It is saying that after you get to know someone over a long period and you find out everything you don't like about the person, you still love them anyway. Oh, by the way, that's called marriage. (laughs) Amen, honey? Right? (laughs) No, it's true. Long-suffering... And forbearance is when you know the truth, when the Instagram moment is gone, you love them anyway. Paul comes with absolute authority and he love, and he says, Look, listen again, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. you see that word or phrase, one another? Can everyone say that loud? One, two, three. Say it. One another. Do you know that Paul says that 40 times in his letters? This is a serious thing for Paul. See, Paul sees that unity has its greatest outworking in relationships. And he says, you need to be involved in one another's lives. You can't live by yourself. You have to be interdependent. And, oh, by the way, we are called to be gentle and humble and patient and and long-suffering. And then he says, and our relationships in the church must be founded in what? What does it say? Love. Now, this love is not sensual love. This is not affection. This is not, I just like you. This is the word agape love. This is the same word used in John three sixteen for God so loved the world. See, what Paul's point here is this. This call for unity is unhuman. It is unnatural. It is impossible. But the love that has been inserted into the Christian's heart isn't human made, is it? Oh, no. This is agape love. See, that's why this next verse is so important. So he says in verse 3, make every effort to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He says, look, church, here it is, straight out. You have to make haste. There is no room for rivalries, hatred, gossip, slander, or factions in any local church. It has no place in a local church. Yes, there are a million reasons why we're different sitting in this room and online. Race. Gender, our backgrounds. All of us have become Christians at different points. Some of us became Christians at three. Others of us were really good people our whole lives. We were self-righteous. We didn't need God's help. And then we found out we did. Others of us have been saved out of real darkness. Sex, money, and power off the deep end. And how we come to Christ is a difference. And then there's personality and age, and different educational backgrounds, and economic differences. There's no politics in this church, right? There's no different political views in this church, is there? You betcha you there are. And Paul comes along and says, see, four, you must be eager. You have to fight for, you have to be intentional, and it is your personal responsibility to maintain peace. And then he says, but do it by the Spirit. See, he doesn't just say, pull up your bootstraps and it's all going to go well for you. He says, no, no, it is by the Spirit of God that unity will happen in a local church. This is a power we need because we could never do this. Actually, we wouldn't want to do this on our own. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, We are all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one. Whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, we are all given the same Spirit to drink. See, the Holy Spirit is the one that keeps us together, gives us the character of, oh right, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's the one that lets us see Jesus, have faith to meet Jesus. He lets us accept Jesus. He allows us to be like Jesus. And just like in Jesus's life, he empowers us with Jesus's character and his gifts. The Holy Spirit is the only one that keeps this church together. Not just our core values, not just our culture, not our theological bent, the Spirit of God. See, church unity, listen closely please, church unity is not what we hope will happen. Church unity is not a desirable outcome. It is not some idea on a strategic plan We don't cross our fingers and say, hope this works. No, no. God's word says to us this morning, this is heaven's demand of us. And each person in this church must choose to conform their conduct so this happens. What did Paul say at the beginning? I, a prisoner of the Lord. I want to remind everyone this morning that every one of us who's a Christian this morning, we are willing slaves to Jesus Christ. I think so, right? We accepted Jesus as Savior and what? Lord. And so when our master says, jump, we ask, how high? And God comes to us this morning, and it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 40 years and you've been this church forever, or another church, or you've just become a Christian. He comes and says, my friends. I've made you into the new humanity. I'm reversing what happened at Babel. I'm reversing what happened at Eden. It is the greatest responsibility of a local church to be this, because the world needs to see a foretaste of heaven. Was Francis Assisi, that great Christian, who prayed a prayer every time there was a problem. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hate, I bring love. Where there's offense, may I bring pardon. May I bring union in a place of discord. See, our unity is maintained by our chosen godly attitudes, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But as we've already seen, as he's talked about our given calling, our unity is maintained in our attitudes, but our unity is grounded in our shared faith experience. Now in verse 4, here is one of the next earliest Christian confessions. Here's one of the very first things ever written down, one of the earliest doctrine statements, and they inserted it right in Scripture. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And we all say, Amen. There is one body. There is only one true church. All Christians make up the church. All those who by faith alone, through grace alone, who've trusted in Jesus alone. You may have the title Christian, but if you haven't done that, you're not part of the body. Every Christian on earth makes up the church. And oh, by the way, there's only one church in Durham. When heaven looks down on Durham right now, he sees, not c four, no, 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 he sees one church. Our Anglican brothers and sisters right now at St. Paul's on the hill in Pickering, and our Baptist friends at Calvary Baptist, and Harvest, and North Whitby, and King Street, Pentecostal, and Southside, when Jesus looks at us, he says one church. Do we have differences? Oh my goodness, do we have differences. We have different theology on secondary issues, culture, music, style, dress. You can fill in the blanks. I mean, we're a real family at Thanksgiving. It's dysfunctional, one one. But, because we're right and they're wrong. Right, you see, right, right, right. See, right? But the point is this when God looks at the church, he sees only one. And amazingly, there's only one church around the world. And there's actually only one church in eternity. See, all of us who are Christians living right now, and those who have already died in the presence of Jesus, there's not two bodies of Christ. There's still only one. And we are bound together even through death by one Spirit. We share one Holy Spirit. He is the super glue that keeps the church together. There is one body, and there is one Spirit. And by the way, there are not 20 or 30. There is only one hope. We all have hope in what God has done, is doing, and will do through Jesus Christ. We have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of resurrection, and everything we've talked about. One body, one spirit, one hope, and together we have one calling. Each one of us were elected for no one predestined and called, not just to be saved, but to be served and to serve others. And out of that, we have one Lord. There's only one Lord. His name is Jesus, the Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God. The one revealed in the Bible. Not a Jesus you invent in your head or changes over time and culture. No, no. Jesus who's proclaimed in this book, he is our one Lord. He is our shared Lord. And our one Lord is where we have one faith. We are one body, bound together by one spirit, brought together by one calling, found in one hope, centered around one Lord, which gives us one faith, which is best demonstrated symbolically through what? One baptism. There's only one baptism. Now, a lot of people say, well, John, is he talking about spirit baptism or, or water baptism? That's not even Paul's point, because one of them only points to the other. At conversion, each one of us was baptized into the Spirit, and that is demonstrated by water baptism. We are in Jesus, for Jesus, owned by Jesus, and we trust in Jesus. Paul's not dealing with the mode or the timing. He's saying we share the same baptism into the Father's calling, the Son's work and the Spirit's presence. All of this, of course, is grounded, though, in one last thing: in one God. O Hero Israel, there is only one. O Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. There's only one God. There are not many gods. There are many things that claim to be gods, but there is only one God, and our faith is grounded in Him. And I love this confession because this confession shows us actually how we all have met God. The Spirit of God comes down here and introduces us to Jesus. And Jesus reveals who God is fully, the Father. And Jesus takes us to the Father. And I love this. As we keep going, one to two to three, we see God, one true living God, in his triune sense, his triune form. And we see God in all of his beauty and his holiness. This is how salvation works. And this is our confession. And by the way, this is very important when it comes to unity between us and other churches. As another pastor wrote, If Jesus is served, and Jesus is really honored as Savior and Lord, then all personal ambition and party rivalry and all disputes on non-essential secondary issues will not allow church unity to be broken. Oh, Jesus, make this true in Durham. Make this true in Durham. Paul says that our unity as a local church is in our mutual calling. Our unity is in our God-given and chosen commanded attitudes And our unity is found in our shared theology and belief. But Paul's not done. I thought he'd be done, but he's not. Paul also says that our unity is actually expressed in our desire to serve through spiritual gifts. Verse 7. But to each one of us, not just some, not just the elite, to each one of us here today, a grace, grace has been given as Christ proportioned it. See, this language is what Paul uses in Romans. Go to the next passage. See, he says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Or in the 1 Corinthians passage, which we studied before, when he says these words, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for what? The common good. See, I want you to catch this this morning our unity at c4 is enforced by spiritual gifts every one of us have spiritual gifts and the idea that we have spiritual gifts means we're all responsible to know them and use them or here's something i didn't preach in that series in spiritual gifts or our unity will fail Our unity as a local church is paramountly connected to the idea of us knowing our gifts. We must all work, know, and use our spiritual gifts for God's glory. The bottom line is each person in this church is called to do ministry in some kind in the place he has gifted us. And as I've preached in that spiritual gift series before in 2011, functioning in your spiritual gift is the only guaranteed place of power. These are God's gifts, not your learned gifts or natural abilities. He's the one who's given to you, given them to you, he empowers them by himself. Now Paul, to show us the unbelievable power of this unity, quotes Psalm 68. And this psalm pictures God conquering all of his enemies, coming among his people and giving them gifts. And he applies it to Jesus. Verse 8, this is why it was said, or it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascend mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now, what does this mean that Jesus descended to the lower regions? Some people say, well, it means he became one of us, a human. Other people say, actually, no, it means he tasted death. And other people say, well, actually, it's more than that because Psalm 68 means he's taking on enemies. So this is him facing down Satan and his hordes at the cross, like Colossians 2.15 says, right? Uh, Disarming the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. So which one is it? Well, I'm going to be postmodern. Yes, it's all of them. It's all of them. He became human, one of us. He tasted sin, he tasted death, sin was put on him, and he faced down the kingdom of darkness in its entirety. But what was the result of his descent? The result of his descent was an unbelievable ascent. And what happens? He actually overcomes everything that is actually against us and and haunts us as a human family. And now it says that this most amazing, most powerful, earth-shattering, evil-conquering, life-giving ascent, He now fills the whole universe. He is supreme over all the heavens and the earth. His descent and ascent have two purposes, to let us know who God is and to restore the whole universe. Have you ever thought this morning that the universe is a Christ-filled universe? That's what this says. And what does he give out of victory? What is the gift he gives the church beyond salvation? It says that out of his victory, he gives us spiritual gifts. Now, I want you to see, think about this. Anyone uh, used to go dandelion picking as a kid? Raise your hand. Any at all? Okay, we hate them now, right? We can't buy pesticides to kill them off. So... So, when would you do it? When they were white or yellow? Yellow. No, white. Unless you're making wine, but that's a whole other issue. Um, So, no, I used to get them when they were white. And what I used to do is I used to sit in a field, and what would you do? You'd pick it, and then what would you do? Right? You'd blow it. And then thousands of terrible dandelions would be planted. But we'd, we'd blow it, right? Now, why is that a great image? Let me tell you why. The kingdom of darkness hates this idea. Because every single time someone becomes a Christian, who shows up? Jesus. The insult against us in the original movement was we were called Christians, little Christs. But that's exactly what happens. See, every time someone becomes a Christian somewhere else, the kingdom of darkness freaks out because Jesus shows up again, and Jesus shows up again, and every time Jesus shows up, then his gifts show up, and as his gifts shows up, his kingdom shows up, and they hate us, and they hate God's move because it's like a dandelion. They can't stop it. Whew, he blows, and more gifts, and more gifts, and more gifts, and as more gifts are used, guess what happens? The kingdom comes. That is why he connects unity to the idea of gifts. Gifts. Now, he outlines some specific ones. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. Now, he focuses only on four or five gifts, depending on how you read it. And why does he do that? Because he's talking about all the leadership gifts. Now, I know this is a lot today, but hold on for a second. This is not talking about offices, This is talking about spiritual gifts. That is the language Paul is using here. There is no such thing anymore as a capital A Apostle or a capital P Old Testament prophet. They don't exist anymore. Those with the office of apostle had the same authority as an Old Testament prophet. They could speak and write scripture. There's a criteria for them. They they witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. They they laid down the teachings of, of the church. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the gifts. And here at C4, let me be very, very candid. We hold in this church that all the gifts still exist today and are in use and should be used. We believe in the gift of apostleship and prophecy and evangelism and pastoring and teaching. We believe in all of that today. We don't believe in the office of those two things, but we believe in the gifts. And by the way, again, I know this is a lot. We, we unpacked all 21 gifts publicly In 2011, starting on September 18th, if you are joining our church or you've been with us for a while, go back and listen to that whole series. Find out your gift. See how it's used. See what the danger is with it. Understand it because this is a core value in this church. And obviously the scripture says that our unity is directly connected to knowing your gift and using your gift and being involved in gift-based ministry. Now he uses these here because these are leadership gifts and word-based gifts. These are given to build up the church, instruct the church, and keep the church in step with the Spirit. They're static and dynamic. They force us to move inside and outside. These gifts start new works, maintain existing works, shut down old works. They keep the church in a proper balance of growing up Christians and inviting others in. They're word gifts. They create leadership opportunities. They teach, they deal with doctrine, they help us see what God is doing among the church. They're the ones who equip all the other gifts. They create the environments for all the other gifts. This strikes a balance between thinking, feeling, starting, and maintaining. And as these gifts are invited and used in a church, every other gift is empowered. All of us in this room are called to use our gifts so the body of Christ will be served and our unity will be guarded. But leaders have the greatest responsibility to do this. And what's the result of this? It says in the next passage this that we will reach unity in faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. We are called, when talking about unity, to sit under God's word and godly leadership. We have to live a life of submission. We are called to live under and be shaped by God's very word. You know, the word infant is strong. It means you who are spiritually immature. You can be like 60 years old and be deeply spiritually mature. It has nothing to do with age. You can be 13 and deeply mature. It has to do with who is forming how you live. Now, it's interesting. I'm an only child and an only grandchild, and so I couldn't, Deal with children. They freaked me out. I was afraid I, they would, I just didn't understand because my world was all about me. So, um, so I, I, didn't, I didn't get it. So when somebody says, You want to hold my baby, I'm like, No, I'm going to break that thing. I'm going to drop it. I don't get it. Uh, now, now that's changed. Three children under six has changed everything. It's trench warfare. You learn on the spot. And, and infants are really interesting. What do infants do? They cry. And then they sleep, maybe. And then they poop. And they poop more. And they poop things at the beginning I didn't know existed in the human body. And, and then what do they do? They, they cry because they want to be fed. And then they start the cycle. The only reason why we don't kill our children is because then they, they seduce us by smiling. Love me. Look at me. I'm like, oh, you're the most amazing thing. Poop. Oh, back in there again. Right? Like <laughs> infants do that. But do you notice what, something about infant? It says they're completely helpless. Infants can't feed themselves. They can't clean themselves. They need to be led and fed. And he says, if you want to grow up, In your spiritual walk, you have to be placed regularly under God's word to be formed and protected. And as you walk in and under good teaching, knowing true doctrine, submitted to godly leadership, and as God does new and powerful things among you through signs and wonders and prophecy, and as the good news of Jesus is given out through evangelism, we will have an ever-growing knowledge of the Son of God. And knowledge is intellectual, relational, and experiential. Biblical knowing is not just I know, it is I know and I know. That is why we're doing inductive Bible studies in our connect groups for this very reason. We are called to grow in our theology and devotion to Christ. This is how Paul ends this section. He says, our unity is also maintained by how we give truth. Look at this. Go to the next verse. It's really powerful. He said, instead, speak the truth in what? Everyone say it? Love. Not all of you said it, sorry. No, this is important. Say it again. Instead, speak the truth in what? Love. Love. We will grow to become in every aspect a mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together, every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. See, here's the thing. We are called to speak the truth in love. Our truth and our love binds us. You cannot say love just means you have to accept everything. That's what our culture says. No, no. Love is defined... By truth. But truth has to be communicated in a loving way. And you notice he uses the idea of body? Because if you don't speak the truth in love, it is like taking a knife to tissue, and you will slash and burn and hurt, and unity will be broken. I love what one pastor said. Through truthing in love, transparent, honest, loving speech, that's how churches grow. Paul says that we are a church united already. Or as another wrote, I love this, Christianity is God-directed, Jesus-defined, and an other-oriented religion. All with such direction, only with such direction away from us do we actually find ourselves. Now, some of you have heard this this morning, it's a lot, and you're feeling very discouraged. Going, John, this is, I feel almost beat up. There's no, this cannot happen. Yes, it can. God is not a liar. Let me say that. No, no. Excuse me. God is not a liar. So, God says this can happen in a local church. Many of you are jaded in this church because you've been to many churches and you've been to congregational meetings and other churches. Look, this is what God's word says. And God says to our church this morning, if you call upon the spirit of God and you humble yourselves, this can happen. This is possible in the most jaded life. This is possible in the most broken life. This is possible in the most broken church. Because God has said that this is his will for every single church. He wants, he invites churches to do this. Why? Because there is freedom here. I have come to give you life and life abundant. So here's how I'm going to end. And, and not yet, okay? Here's how I'm going to end. I'm going to take a moment before we take communion, the greatest symbol of our unity, and I'm going to pray through each part of our unity. And I'm going to ask the Lord to speak to each one of us to see if we are a threat to the unity of this church or building it up. And depending on what the Lord says to you, you pray in that direction. And then we together are going to pray over each part of this unity. We're going to ask God to build our unity in each area Paul has outlined. And this is a a significant moment, because remember, God is not just not a liar. God hears our prayers and answers. And so this is a moment where all of us need to stop, take a breath, and be honest. Because God's bride is the most important thing to Him. And if you are threatening His bride, He shows up. But He wants us to be free. So get in a posture like we say here, whatever you want to do, stand, sit, kneel, take your shoes off, all of the different postures of Scripture. We're going to pray through this, and then we're going to take communion together. And you online too, you're most welcome to do this. And not only that, if you go to another church, this is as much for you as it is for us. So let's start with our calling. God says in his word that a life of worth is based in what he's already done in our life. I want to say this to you, church, listen closely. If you really believe that you're elected, called, and saved by Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, adopted and forgiven, then the root of pride is dealt with right here. How can you say that you're better than anyone else when God chose them too? The root of self hate is dealt with here. How can you continue to say that you are worth nothing or you're a worm or you're garbage or you're crap when that is not what God has declared over you? We all have the same access. The need to please others, to find identity is removed here because God is the one who sustains us. God's voice must and must become more addictive and powerful and persuasive than anything else in this church. So my question to you this morning as we pray is, do you believe what God has declared over you this morning? Do you believe it and is it evidenced in your life? If it's not, just pray this prayer. Lord, I want to live a life of worth out of the calling I've already received. So forgive me for any lies I've believed being better than anyone else or actually being worse than what you say or forgive me for wasting my life and energy trying to be something I'm not supposed to be. Lord, break any and all lies. And then we together as a church pray, O Lord, would you do this right now? Would you break all lies in this church? that violate what you've already done over us in Jesus' name. We pray, oh God, that we have unity in this church because of our mutual calling. And we invite the Holy Spirit to show up every time we think that that's not true. Here's the next prayer. Unity in our attitudes. Be completely humble, gentle, patient, forbearing, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Are you fighting for peace in this church or are you a threat to C4? Holy Spirit, come and convict us. Lord, for us who have just admitted that we're not humble or we're not gentle or patient or we don't bear with one another or we don't keep unity in our thoughts or our words or our online chats, forgive us. And now we pray as a church, make us humble, gentle, patient, forbearing. Holy Spirit, give our church peace. What about unity in our shared faith? Are you growing in theology? Are you growing in God's word? Are you growing in one Lord, one faith, one baptism? How is your devotional life with Jesus? Our unity is deeply connected to each person's decision to be molded this way. Some of us are admitting before you, Lord, we have actually not given time to your word. Or actually there are things in the Bible we don't like and so we've just decided to not deal with that with you. Forgive us. And Lord, we pray over this church that we'd grow in a deep knowledge of the Son of God intellectually, relationally, devotionally, and spiritually. Hear our prayer as a church. Lord, we pray about our spiritual gifts. Lord, forgive us. Some of us for running from our gifts. Forgive some of us for being lazy about our gifts. Forgive some of us for not serving when you've called us to. Forgive us, Lord, some of us using our gifts without the character we need. Lord, forgive some of us for literally saying to you, I refuse to, I just refuse you to give me that gift. Like, I don't want, forgive us. Lord, may this church have a greater understanding of the severity and need of our gifts. Help us, Lord, never to make disunity wanting other people to have gifts that you haven't given them. And Lord, all of us now pray together as a church, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit and equip this church with all the gifts. Help those with apostleship and prophecy and teaching and leadership and evangelism to be empowered in ways they've never been empowered before so all the other gifts can be equipped. And lastly, Lord, we pray about honest, transparent, loving speech. So many of us, Lord, in church have heard the right thing or the just thing said but said in such a wrong way. Would you forgive us, Lord, for saying right things without love? Would you forgive others of us for saying wrong things, thinking we're being loving and we're not? We're truth-filled. We pray that this church, Holy Spirit, would be filled with loving speech. Holy Spirit, we end by saying this. We need your help. We really need your help because this call for unity is impossible. But all things are possible through Jesus, through the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come. We pray on us. Now, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Why don't we stand together as the band comes this morning, and we prepare to take communion. This is the great symbol of, of course, our unity. And this is the symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is for Christians who have participated in everything I've just preached on. The qualifications in Scripture, though, are three. Uh, If you're struggling, you're welcome. If you're doing well, you're welcome. If you're not a believer yet, you're not welcome because you've not embraced the one this represents. But if you are in rebellion, if you are living a life overtly against Christ, though you're a Christian, he says, don't take this unless you repent because it's actually dangerous. Paul says some of you fall asleep. Like people have died misusing this. So be very careful, but come, get ready. And as you take communion this morning, may I encourage you to say, I commit. Listen closely. As you take communion, say, I commit. Use your name. I, John Thompson, commit to the unity of C4, because it's the body of Christ. So as we take this together, let me bless this, take a moment to ask forgiveness for sins, pray for the church's unity, and also remember at this time when we come forward, we give above and beyond to widows and orphans, those who need free counseling and food. We give to our care fund. Give generously this morning above and beyond what you've been giving today. So Lord, we pray you'd bless these elements. We pray you'd meet people at these communion tables. Lord, would you encourage people to be generous with their giving? And Lord, we pray for the unity of our church that you would do greater and mightier things among us. I mean, we're praying for revival, and that's what this is. So Lord, have your way. Help this church to be churches that are mountains that choose to level themselves as represented, of course, what you did on the cross through your death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, we all pray these things. Amen. So you're welcome to come forward as people serve you this morning.